Well, good morning, church. We're glad that you guys are joining us this morning as we continue in our conversations series. Last week, Pastor Eddie talked about how to have eternal life, and today we're going to be going through section two of our Faith Basics guidebook called The Standard. And I just want to encourage you, if you're online and you're like, hey, I want one of these, you can go to highstreet.org slash conversations, download one there, grab one at Next Steps after the service, take a couple with you. We've built this so that you can go and take it and have a conversation with somebody Uh, And so today we're going to be talking about the standard or God's word uh, as being the standard um, and the truth. And so I want to start today by telling a story. And uh, if it were not for the knocking on a door uh, in 1945 in Amsterdam, we probably would not know the name of Hans von Megaren. Hans von Megaren. Now, he was a Dutch artist, uh, but Megaren was not a, uh, a very good artist himself, actually. Uh, he was just an average artist. We don't know him because of his own art, skill, and ability, but rather we know him because he was part and the leader behind the largest art scandal or the greatest art scandal of the 20th century. So as Megaren, who uh, just uh, around the time of World War II, um, he, he realized, like, man, I, I want to make some money, so how am I going to do that? I want to replicate some artwork. So not just replicate artwork, because that's hard to do. It has to match exactly. But he decided, I'm going to find an artist. I'm going to kind of branch off of their artwork and create some lost pieces. So there was actually a Dutch artist named Vermeer from a couple centuries prior to the time of World War II who had produced around uh, 35, 36 pieces of artwork. But art critics were like, where are the rest of these Vermeer paintings? Where are they? And so it was Maguren who played on this bias. He actually started to create artwork that looked similar to Vermeer's, and then he started to circulate them as these uh, lost and found Vermeer paintings. And you might be thinking, like, how did he make them seem old? He actually found that as he included melted down plastic in his paint, and he would put it inside of a pizza oven, that when he would take it out, it would actually be crackled, and it would kind of resemble artwork that had aged. Now, he was actually so successful that he sold almost $3 million worth of these fake and counterfeit paintings. And in today's world, that would be around $30 million that he had accrued from doing this. But it was actually his own success that was his undoing. And so this was during the time of World War uh, II, and there was a leader within the Nazi party named Hermann Goering. And if you know anything about World War II, he was the second in command within the Nazi regime and head over the Luftwaffe, the uh, German Air Force. And so Goering was an avid art collector. But one thing the Germans did is they kept meticulous records of everything that happened. And as the Germans invaded Holland, it was actually Goering who crossed paths with Megurin and uh, actually hobnobbed together, right? And Maguren sold him some of this counterfeit artwork. And so then after the war had finished, uh, officials, government officials from Holland actually came to Maguren and they said, hey, why is your name on these records? Why did you sell him a painting? And that was when the whole plot was uncovered, that what Maguren was doing was producing these fake paintings. But Maguren actually twisted the, the lie even while he went to trial for this or as he was about to go to trial. He started to paint himself as a Dutch patriot saying, of course I knew that I was going to, uh, even though he was, he was actually you know, partaking with the Germans, he said, of course I knew that I was ripping them off. And he tried to paint himself as a patriot, but really he was just a liar and he was a counterfeit. But See how he twisted the truth and he made it hard to find. 
And so we only know his name because of these records and that's why we still know about this scandal and things. But it really paints a picture of the truth can oftentimes be hard to find. The truth can be hard to find. I mean, isn't it wild that we live in a a day and in a society where we have more access to information than ever before, but the truth seems harder to find than it ever has before? I mean, that's mind-blowing. What's funny is there was actually, uh, just just to share a little bit of what, what we struggle to find is real news, fake news. There was actually an article that uh, was circulated on Facebook and it said that President Trump had actually ordered the execution of five turkeys pardoned by President Obama. And you laugh at that, but that had 900,000 shares on Facebook, okay? Fake news. What's true? How do we know what truth is? We are in a world that really is in a crisis for truth. Something innate, something inside of us is saying there, there has to be truth somewhere, right? And so we lean on the truths of other people. Some of us look internally for truth and uh, speak our truth, speak your truth, and, and whatever is true to you, just live your truth. But what does that all mean? Why are we seeking for truth? I believe it's because God has wired us to seek after truth, to seek after a standard which exists, which we can live by. And what seems so complicated, what seems so complex to find truth, I believe God has made very simple. He's made it very simple. And so what we wanna do today is we wanna look at a conversation that Jesus was having with some Jewish people, some of whom were believers, and as we'll see later, some of whom actually wanted to kill him, but Jesus has a conversation and he highlights some important things to notice about truth. So we're gonna be in John chapter eight today uh, in verses 31 through 32, and this is what it says. It says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So when we look at this passage here, the first thing that we notice is that Jesus is making a claim is that there is a standard of truth. There is an absolute standard of truth that exists. And if you're like me, do we have any Star Wars fans in the room? I, I thought of the only Sith deal in absolutes. Anybody? When Obi-Wan Kenobi is he's fighting Anakin. All right, if you're not a Star Wars fan, it doesn't make any sense. But there is an absolute standard of truth that exists. This is the claim that Jesus is making. It's not based on our opinions, our emotions, our feelings, our experiences. It's based upon the word of God. This standard of truth is actually based around the word of God and it's unchanging. And that can be something that maybe is hard to swallow. It's like, is this, is is the Bible, is God's word really like the, is that, is that the truth? But honestly, it's so much less chaotic than we look at the crisis to find truth in our world. That Jesus is saying there is an absolute standard of truth. And when you live by it, your life's actually going to be better. There is an absolute standard of truth. And that truth will actually set you free. But what will it set us free from? Why should we care that a standard exists? Why should we care that um, you know, God has created this word, which is really his desire to connect with us? It's his, it's his desire to have an ongoing conversation with us. Why should we care about that? Because it's better than any human creation of truth that we see, that God's standard sets us free from what? It sets us free from our sins. What does God's word tell us? 
It tells us that we are all sinful people. And I don't think it takes much for us to all agree that like, yes, I've made mistakes in my life. And we know that we have this debt and it doesn't seem like, what can we do about it? But this debt has actually separated us from our creator. It's separated us from God because he's holy, he's perfect, he's good, but yet we have this sin. But the Bible tells us that God was not okay with that, that his plan all along was to send his son Jesus to die on a cross to take on our sin debt that we can have a relationship with God and once again be restored to him. See, what's cool about this is in John chapter one, Jesus is actually referred to as the living word, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that the living word is what justifies us. What Jesus did on the cross is what brings us justification. What justification means is that we have been made right with God. When we admit we have sin in our lives, when we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that God sent him, and we confess Jesus as Lord of our life. We talked about that last week, about beginning a relationship with Jesus, that when we do that, we are justified by the living word. And not only that, are we, we, we free from that bondage of sin, and we're gonna spend an eternity in heaven with Jesus, but then for the rest of our time on earth, the written word of God is what sanctifies us. It's what makes us holy. It's what makes us more Christ-like, that as we apply this standard of truth in our lives, that it actually does something to our soul and to our spirit, making us more like Christ. The living word and the written word, it sets us free from the bondage of sin. And maybe you're in here today and you say, I've got struggles, I don't know what to do with it. I'm addicted to this, I struggle with that, I failed in this way. Can I tell you that what God wants to do is he wants to forgive that debt that you have, but he, all, he wants you to set you free in your life that you can have meaning and purpose within it. There is an absolute standard of truth and then Jesus wants us to follow in that standard so that we can be free. You know, it's important here at the beginning of this verse, you see, or these verses, it says, if you abide in my word. I think it's important that we understand, like, what does it mean to abide? Well, to abide to really just means to remain, to continue to be present, to not depart. And how can we do that? With, the, with, with this book, this collection of books, why does it matter that we continue to engage in it? I love Hebrews 4.12, it talks about how the word of God is living and it's active. It's living and it's active. That's why, you know, I, I love talking to people uh, and, and they've, they've been believers for a long time and they've read God's word year after year, but yet still it speaks to them. Because it's unlike any other book, it's unlike any other textbook that's ever been written in the history of the world is that it still speaks to us today. And we live in a world that oftentimes views the Bible as some archaic text that has no meaning to what we do today and just has a bunch of old-fashioned rules that we don't need to follow anymore. But the truth of God's word says it's living and it's active. How else can you explain, like I love when I sit down to read God's word, and maybe it's a passage I've read before, or I listen to someone speak and teach about God's word, and maybe I've heard that passage a hundred times, but yet it still speaks to my heart and to my soul. To me, that is one of the greatest evidences of a creator. How do you explain that? God's word, as we abide in it, it changes us. This abiding is so important. You know, and uh, all, all of us are, are busy, we have things going on, and it is a challenge to sometimes abide in God's word. 
But one thing that has helped me to apply this standard to my life is memorizing scripture. Now, I did not grow up memorizing scripture. Uh, Honestly, this was not something that I did until the last couple of years of my life. But engaging in this discipline has changed things for me because I always am carrying around within my head and written on my heart, I'm carrying around this word of God with me. Let me give you a practical example. I have a a son who is just over a year old and uh, his name's Cash. I love him to death, but he has been a, he's a pain, all right? Um, That dude doesn't sleep. He needs his mom for everything. And uh, he's just a struggle sometimes. And honestly with Cash, uh, and and I I paint this as a trial and I, I understand that there's like real serious trials that people have. But for my wife and I in parenting, it's been a little bit of trial for us because he's had these ear infection issues. He's had these issues with sleeping and there doesn't always seem to be a clear answer of what we need to do. There's not necessarily always a clear pathway. And so when you're waking up at random times throughout the middle of the night, you never know when it's gonna be, like that can be a trial. And I've had to repeat to myself James 1.12, which says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, knowing that when he has withstood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The reason I need that word right then, that word of truth, is because I know that in my own power, I will not remain steadfast in that trial. Given to my own emotions and my own thoughts and feelings, I don't want to serve. I don't care to to be a caretaker in those moments. But when I remember Galatians 5, 16, that I walk by the Spirit and I will not gratify the desires of the flesh, that as I walk by the Spirit, God begins to change my heart. And that's just one example of how knowing God's Word and how abiding in it, we can apply it to our lives. And not only does it help us, here's the thing. Truth doesn't just help us. It helps us help other people. Because you know what other people don't need if they they need to meet and they need to talk and they have something going on? They don't need my opinion that much. What they need is the truth of God's word. So as you sit and and you're going through this booklet with people, what they need is, is not your opinion. Now, you can give them your opinion, And hopefully it's good and you give wise and sound advice, but what they need more than anything is the truth of God's word. And what we should do is we have the truth is it should always orient us outward. Here's my fear sometimes, I know I get this way. As I look at the circumstances and the situations in our world, sometimes it can be overwhelming. And I see this attitude from Christians sometimes, myself included. It's like, man, the, the world's just, it's, it, nothing's going right. Everything's terrible. This is all bad. And granted, a lot, of, a lot of pain and brokenness and hurting and sin is active in this world. But do we look at the world around us through the lens of truth of God's word? knowing that we have a message of hope because if we are not people of hope because of the truth that we know, who is gonna be? The truth should orient us outward to impact the people around us, to have conversations that matter the most with people around us. As I get to talk to and gather with young adults every single week, sometimes it's like people, I I don't like when it's like kids these days, you know? But what I can tell you is that every generation needs the truth. And the generations that are coming, the generations that are coming up in elementary school and middle school and high school and college, they need the truth and they are hungry for the truth. And many people are waiting for someone to speak truth into their lives. I want you to think about that. In your sphere of influence, you might be the only person to ever share anything that's true with somebody. 
The truth should change us. When we know the truth internally in our hearts, it should send us outward to the people around us that we have a great hope. You know, as I think about abiding, uh, I I listened to a message by uh, Timothy Keller. He's one of my favorite pastors. And uh, he he said this, that he and his wife, Kathy, were going through uh, just a really tough time. He was sick. Uh, It was post 9-11 where they passed her in New York City that things were heavy. And it was just really, really hard for them. And he was speaking of this in terms of his prayer life. But I think we can apply it to the way we read read God's word. He said, I, it really came to me. My wife started talking to me. She's like, if you were physically ill, so picture any of you in here, you have a physical illness, and you do, if you do not take this medicine that has been prescribed to you, every single day you will die. Within hours you will pass away from not having taken this medicine. If that was the case, you would not forget to take that medicine. That medicine would be valuable and important to you. And he said, this is how I started approaching my prayer life. Pastor Eddie says all the time is uh, one of the great things about preaching is that the message gets to work on you before you ever share it. And that's the way I've kind of thought about my, my Bible reading is just like, man, do I really believe, like, do I really believe that I need this word? Or is it a discipline I just check off the list? It's kind of opened my eyes and changed the way I've read this week as I've seen the importance and the value in it. And I don't say all that to say that this is some legalistic thing and there's grace, like you're gonna have some seasons in life where you struggle with it to be consistent. But I think if we view it in a way of like, man, this is that important. This daily dose of truth is so important in my life. I think it will help us to better abide in God's word. We gotta abide in God's word. You know, one of the things that... uh, that's really a truth about this situation is that within our world, in this crisis of truth, there is a truth of God's word, but there is also a a battle for truth. There's a war for truth that is going on. And as Jesus is speaking to this group of people in John chapter eight, there are some of those who seek to kill him, to destroy his life, to end his ministry here on earth. And he's telling them, he's, he's kind of, they're kind of squabbling with him. He tells them, hey, you think your lineage is gonna save you, but you ignore my truth. You're not paying attention to my word. And this is what he tells them in John 8, 43 through 45. He says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do the father's desires. He's a, he was a murderer from beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Jesus says right here, there is an enemy. Scripture paints it very clear that Satan's job is to steal, to kill, and destroy, that he is the father of lies. He sows seeds of discords and untruth throughout our world. We have to pay attention to that. I always think of 1 Peter 5, 8. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That we have to be on guard against the lies of the enemy. And the way that we do that is by understanding the truth of God's word. We have to look to the example of Jesus. When Jesus was in the wilderness and he was being tempted by Satan, what did he do? 
He combated the lies of the enemy with the truth of God's word. This is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. What does he do? He goes to God's word and he rebukes Satan with it, setting the example of how we are to, how we are to do it in our lives. There are so many people, I think, that just unknowingly have bought into so many lies in their life and they have no idea why. I think many people, we don't, like, they don't even evaluate why they think the way they do. Because Satan has weaved these lies, and as we go and we share this truth, we combat it. But I think we also need to think about it like this. In your own life, Satan wants to feed you lies. And you need the truth of God's word to battle it. When you have times where you're, you're self-conscious and you have low self-esteem and you think, man, God can't use me, God hasn't called me anything, because of my past failures, my past sins, my past mistakes, I have no future. When you feel overwhelmed by the world, you can remember that Jesus has said, take heart, for I have overcome the world, that you replace the lie from Satan with the truth of God's word. This is my challenge to you. Next time you're stressed, next time you're anxious, next time you're feeling depressed, next time you feel overwhelmed, next time you're angry, next time you're struggling with lustful thoughts, next time you're whatever it is that you're struggling with, bitterness, envy, jealousy, hatred. What if you would take that lie from Satan and you would replace it with the truth of God's word? As you do that, your life I promise you this, God's word will not return void in your life. He will work and change your heart. That's the truth. Society tells us what to think about ourselves all the time, but what we should value most is not what other people say about us, but what God's word says about us. And I think there's people, you know, that grew up in a situation where you never had a parent that spoke a word of encouragement, a word of truth, a word of love to you. And you might have some scars from that. But what you need to do is you need to go in where all that hurt and pain is and see what does God's word have to say about me? And again, what do people need? They need bearers of truth, carriers of truth to go and share that with them. And that's if we're a believer, that's our role and our responsibility. You know, a few years ago, we did a series through uh, Ephesians chapter six on the armor of God here at High Street. And uh, as you know, I love Ephesians uh, 6, 10 and 11. It says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may withstand the schemes of devil or the schemes of Satan. That as we put on this armor of God, there's literally uh, this armor of God, it helps us to fight in this battle. You know, in, in the, the armor that is listed, there is the belt of truth. And I picture just like a, you know, like a WWE belt. We've got James over here. My man James is a big wrestling fan. And I know he has a WWE belt at home. But when I think about like a WWE belt or a wrestling belt, like this is the belt of truth. But for a soldier back in the day, this was what kept everything together. This is what collected the armor together so that they could fight this belt of truth. And then the only offensive weapon listed within this armor of God was the sword of the spirit, which was the word of God. So this sword of the spirit, when we look at the way this description, it doesn't mean like a long sword. It actually means more of like a dagger that would be used in hand-to-hand -hand combat. I have no idea what that would look like or how that would be. I've never been in hand-to-hand -hand combat, but a, a, a dagger. And so this is representative that, man, 
we are in this battle and as we are in this spiritual battle, this belt of truth, right? The truth of God's word, the, this, this weapon that we are to use to wage war against the lies of the enemy, the lies of Satan, it's the word of God. And you know, as I look at this and I, I think about such a complex situation, you know, it's such a complex situation to find truth sometimes that it's actually really simple. Jesus tells us there is a standard of truth. That if you follow this truth, it will set you free. And as you rely on this truth, it will help you to grow in holiness and battle against the lies of Satan. We so desperately need this truth. I think one of the, uh, the master really plans of, of Satan is just to keep us distracted. Uh, to keep us just from really thinking about things that matter. He doesn't, you know, there, there's no desire to have conversations that really matter. Like that, that's what he wants for us. We don't ever get past surface level. Only ever keep things at surface level. And I fear that there's a lot of people that go there, that really they can go their whole lives without ever facing the truth. But I do think there is a universal truth that we all face that really forces us to confront the word of God, and that's death. Many of you in here, you know, um, you've, you've experienced the loss of a loved one or, or someone that was close to you, and I've seen this impact communities from my time as a teacher and um, through these things and coaching. You see that when someone passes away, especially suddenly, there's this openness to the truth of God's word from people around it. Why? Because I think for many people, we go without ever confronting the truth. Why are there people that are on their deathbeds that finally, uh, you know, confront the truth? Why did the thief on the cross finally recognize, you know, I need, there's something more here? It's because we are faced with our own mortality. I've thought about this a lot. Man, we, I want to, I want to understand that the truth of God's word I will not live forever. But even though I won't live forever, because of my relationship with Jesus, because I have decided to follow Jesus, I have an eternal security, an eternal hope because of that. So I don't have to fear. I don't have to be scared. I don't have to wonder about the plan and the purpose for my life because I know that God's word, the truth, says that I'm gonna be okay. I'm gonna be okay here on this earth and I'm gonna be okay for eternity. You know, further on in the book of John, one of my favorite passages in all of scripture, Jesus is having a conversation with the disciples in John 14. He's kind of let them know you know, I, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna, uh, I'm, he's kind of filling them in that I'm not gonna be here forever. This is what he tells them. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, I love Thomas. 
I feel like this is how I would have responded. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Thomas is thinking in just of physical terms, of terms on this earth. And this is what Jesus said to him. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are people in our world who think that that's limiting. How how could we be so arrogant to say that there's only one way to God? Something has to be true. And the truth of God's word says that Jesus is the way to the Father. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And that anyone who puts his trust in him will have eternal life. It won't perish. You're in one of two spots in here. You either know that already, and that should motivate you to be on mission and to have conversations, or second, you've never really confronted that truth before. Can I tell you that Jesus wants to start a relationship with you today? Scripture tells us everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's so simple. I said it already. We, we admit we're a sinful person. We believe in God, that he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross to pay for the debt of our sin. And we confess Jesus as Lord of our life. Have you ever confronted that truth before? As we close, I want to ask you to bow your heads.